This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, May 20th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Andrew Pack. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Verses 22 through 41. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man tested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has shown with an oath, or sworn to him with an oath, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruptions. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witness, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out of this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when, you, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Good morning. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the the, uh, pastor of discipleship for Restoration Road Church. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table out there. Feel free to grab one. Uh, I will pray for us, and we'll dig into the book of Acts. King Jesus, this is your day. 
And we are your people, and we gather now to exalt your holy name. We gather now to come to your word and ask, Holy Spirit, that you would use your word like logs on the fire of our heart, that you would light us up for a passion for the truth of the gospel, that the reality of your life, your death, and your resurrection, and your rule and reign as we speak would be the window by which we see reality, would be the thing that drives us in our lives and in all that we do. Jesus, we can only do this if You would send us Your Spirit now and open our eyes and lead us through Your Word. So Lord, I just pray that whatever is of me would be forgotten. But the things that are of You, Jesus, by the power of Your Spirit would shine in Your Word because those things are eternal. And so Jesus, we do love You so much and we just proclaim the power of Your holy name. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're in Acts chapter 2, which is about here in your paper Bible. If you have one of those, uh, please go there with me. Uh, In the church calendar right now, it is Pentecost. So brothers and sisters around the globe who celebrate the church calendar are uh, focusing on the Holy Spirit or sermons like this one that happened on the day of Pentecost. We are here providentially, so good for us. Here we go. Um, My hope today as we look at this text here in Acts chapter 2, starting verse 22, um, is in a sense that we might answer some questions you have that you might bring in uh, to to this time, our time together. So, you know, on one level you might come in here with questions like, well, you know, I love this idea of telling people about Jesus, but, but what should I tell them about Jesus? If my neighbor or my coworker wants to know about Jesus, what should I tell them? If, if I happen to have that moment, that beautiful opportunity to tell somebody in an elevator or on an airplane about Jesus, what should I say? Maybe you're in here and you're a Christian and you've, you've known Jesus, but when you hear words like the gospel, you hear that and you're like, I'm not honestly totally sure exactly what that is. I, I like it. I love it. But I'm not even quite sure exactly what that is. Or maybe you're in here today and you're not a Christian at all. And, and you've come to be with Jesus' people to learn about this Jesus guy and what we believe about things my hope is that your questions would be answered. Or, or maybe you're coming in here. Maybe you ended up here somehow. Maybe somebody brought you. Maybe somebody invited you. And you've already made up your mind about Christianity and who Jesus is and who you think He is. It's my hope today as we look at this thing we call the Gospel that you might be surprised what we actually think about Jesus and who Jesus actually is. So here in chapter 2, we're going to talk today about this thing that is the Gospel. And we, we sometimes miss the power of this Word that it means news. And it's news that must be proclaimed. It's really good, important, earth-shattering news. And today we're going to hear from Peter on this very first Pentecost. Now, for this to make any sense, you must understand some things about Peter. Peter is a man who walked with Jesus Christ for three years in the flesh, knew Jesus, walked with Jesus. Not only walked with Him, but saw Him do many miracles saw him cast out demons, saw him take a little boy's lunch and feed 5,000 people, saw him calm storms, saw him heal the sick, saw him move in power. Then saw him crucified dead and risen from the dead. Not only that, Peter saw Jesus walking around after the resurrection and then ascend to Peter. Peter is a person who you could say has had an encounter with God. Right? Now something happens at Pentecost where God fulfills promises, if we're in Acts here, the first 78% of your Bible 
promises that God's going to do something big. And one of the big things God's going to do is he's going to send his people, his Holy Spirit, to dwell inside of them. This thing happens at Pentecost where God does that. Now, the thing about Pentecost, you have to keep in mind, the sending of the Holy Spirit to the church, this wonderful and amazing thing we heard about last week, we can't do something to conjure that back up. That was a one-time event. However, you have to understand that it's something that we can't repeat, but it's something that can't be undone. The, 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 the effects of Pentecost are alive and at work in the church now that the Spirit has come and He has continued to be here with His people since then. Now, this experience that Peter has had with the Holy Spirit is so powerful that even though, and mind you, walked around with Jesus on the earth for three years, he's had powerful encounters with God. Something happened when the Spirit came upon him and upon the church that, that he couldn't help but respond. And today we're going to see this essential message, this thing he just has to come out and say. This thing that he has to do, and it's actually kind of a proper sermon. Because last week we heard the beginning of this where someone read Scripture, and then, uh, then he moves on into the essential message of the Gospel, and he puts it in context, and then he actually kind of applies it to their life. It's actually, in some respects, a fairly typical sermon. Now, of course, we only get an excerpt of the sermon. We don't get the whole thing, but that's, that's the movement of it. And so as we look to this, we're going to see this essential message of the Gospel. This reality that Jesus saves sinners from death to life and there's not anything we can do but receive that. We can't earn that love that is a gift from God. This is different than every other religion. Every other religion gives you some way to meditate, stretch, or do good works to get to God or eternity or nirvana or whatever. And if we're all really honest, as you were cussing at people trying to get here because of the motorcycle stuff or whatever you did in your van when someone was parked in your spot, if you know yourself well, you know that you're not the person to get you to God. We need a Savior. His name is Jesus. And that's the thing that Peter has to get out and say. And so, as we work through Peter's sermon here, I want you to kind of think, a bit, think of it almost like a classical music piece. A, a classical music piece has these sort of movements as you're listening and, and these changes. And so our first movement, if you're a note taker, is going to be looking at the whole gospel. And then he trans transitions from talking about the whole gospel to talking about the context of the gospel, how the gospel exists uh, sort of in reality. And finally, he's going to move on to talk about our response to this gospel, to this news. So here we are in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Listen. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Now, it's interesting when you come back to a text you've studied before, the things you begin to see. And I realized as I came back to this, test, to, uh, this text that, that Peter actually gets a couple jabs in here as he's preaching to these people. So he's saying, hey, this Jesus, this Jesus came and he did these works that I mentioned. He, he fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He was on the move and God was moving through him. And he's saying, those were signs from God to you about a very particular thing. Because here's biblical history, world history in 30 seconds. God made everything good. Human beings broke it. And even though human beings broke it, very early on, God makes a promise to come and fix what we broke. 
He reveals his plan to fix what we ultimately broke. And he sent Jesus to come do that fixing. And he's ultimately going to come and restore absolutely everything. And so when Jesus comes, he comes in this fulfillment of the Old Testament. And as he comes, God moves through him with these signs as a big, eh, eh, eh. It's the Messiah. It's that guy I promised. It's the one who's going to wipe all the tears from all the eyes. It's the one who's going to bear your iniquities and your griefs and your sorrows. It's the one who's going to bring the new covenant. It's the one who I promised and he's here and there he is. And they said, well, thanks for the free lunch, but uh, this whole Messiah thing's kind of weird. I'll take the fish and loaves, but this whole worshiping you thing, no thank you, Jesus. Right? And so as we get into this first movement, I want us to see that there's three things going on here that we would call the gospel. The manger, the cross, and the crown. If you, if some, if you want to be able to say what the gospel is, you need to remember those things. The manger, the cross, and the crown. Or if you want to be really Baptisty, you go the cradle, the cross, and the crown. But Jesus wasn't in a cradle. He was in a manger. But that's not three C's. I'll go with the manger. You can go with the cradle. That's fine. Whatever it takes for you to remember it. And so as we look to this movement and we see this thing that Peter's unpacking, we're looking at his life, we're looking at his death, and we're looking at his resurrection. And so Peter here has said, hey, look, God had signs through this guy. And it's really important that we see this because he says that God did these signs through him. Why is that important? Because often the reason that we give for why it is that Jesus did the miracles is what? Well, he's God. Of course he can take a little boy's lunch and feed some people. Of course he can cast out demons. Of course he can do miracles. He's God. There's a thing that neglects. A very important thing that neglects. And the thing that it neglects is that yes, he is fully God, but he is also fully human. Why is that important to us? Well, so he can be our high priest. And you say, well, that's kind of weird. What do you mean high priest? I've never thought about high priest. Well, Read the book of Hebrews. It's my favorite book of the Bible. We have Bibles out there. Grab one, take it home, read it. Hebrews is incredible. But what it tells us about the high priest, and the important part is that Jesus, our great high priest, had to be made like his brothers in every way. What does that mean? It means that Jesus knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to be a human. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be disappointed. He knows what it's like to have friends get sick. He knows what it's like to have friends die. He knows what it's like to feel abandoned. He knows what it's like to be you. Right? You might be sitting there saying, that's nice for you to say, preacher. You don't know me and you don't know what I've been through. Fair. Just like you don't know what I've been through. Fair. But here's what I know. God's God, which means he knows everything about you. And also, he was a human being, which means he's actually walked on this earth and actually knows what it's like to be you, which means we can actually relate to him. That means we can actually go to him. We can go to him with our pain and our hurts and our temptations and every other thing, and we can go to him and we can call out to him, and he knows what it's like to be you. That is unique on the scene of world religions, by the way. That is unique. So he lived, but not only that, he, he lived in such a way that he lives the life that I should have lived. He lives as, to use the fancy Latin for the day, he's the, he's the Christus exemplar. He's our example. Christ is our example. You don't need the Latin. Just remember example, right? Christ is our example. And you say, well, what kind of example is the guy who takes a little boy's lunch and feeds 5,000 people? That's not much of an example because when I go down to Total Mexico, I get the two enchiladas and they're huge, but that's not feeding 5,000 people. 
they're like $4.95 a piece, and they're great down there. But if you go down there and you come from Restoration Road, you better tip them well. And I'm not joking about that. Tip well when you are out and about, friends, especially if you're going to pray over your food. But that is a sermon for a different day. (laughs) But I mean it. Be nice. Say thank you. They're image bearers of God, for goodness sake. They're not your servants. They are the people at the restaurant who are just like you. But I'll stop this sermon and I will keep moving on. I digress. But he's our example. So it's not that he's our example and that we're going to take the the enchilada plate and then everybody in the restaurant is going to be fed. But here's what Jesus did. He lived a perfect God-centered life. He lived a perfect others-centered life. At the core of Jesus' life, he put God first, others next, and himself last. He showed us what love is. Love is this, someone who lays down their life for their friends. He showed us what it was like to lead by taking cuts in line for the worst jobs. He is our example. Not only that, when you read the Bible, have you ever been weirded out by the reality that Jesus was a man of prayer? That he fasted? He went out to sync up to God the Father? You've been given a gift. You've been given as a Christian person a direct and unfettered access to the God of the universe. Why do we not pray more? Why do we not ask more of this one who can do all? He's glorified when we come to him dependent. We don't come to him to put in orders. We come to him with empty hands and saying, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, help me, please. And that glorifies him because what you're saying in that moment is you need him. And guess what? Whether you say it or not, you do. You don't have breath in your lungs or blood in your veins without the Lord Jesus Christ saying so. Now, we have to be careful with all these things, the manger, the cross, and the crown, because as much as that is about our life, at the same time, uh, we, can, we can kind of get lopsided with the gospel. If we focus on one of these elements and don't hold them all together, our, our understanding of what it is to be a Christian person can get kind of funky, and we just have to watch out for that. And, and honestly, if we keep pushing it, it gets worse, but we'll talk about it, okay? So, so Christus Exemplar, he is our example. Okay? He shows us how to live, loving others, and walking in holiness. He was holy. He, he didn't do any wrong. Was made like his brothers in every way, but knew no sin. That is our example. Now, if we take that upon ourselves and say, well, I have to not sin, and that's up to me, and I'm going to white-knuckle it, I'm going to do spiritual push-ups, and I'm going to have morality, and I'm going to do this thing, when it's about me, it's about me, and that's called legalism. And we get caught up in holiness, and, and the, the things that I do to obey God are not because uh, I love him, or know that he loves me and he has my best interests in mind, but so that God will love me. Friends, God loves you. If you're a Christian, God loves you. If you're not a Christian, be saved. He loves you. He loved us while we were still enemies. While we were still enemies. Turn to him. Turn to him. Now, when we push that to its extreme, we kind of get into like a social justice gospel, which really says the good news is that you, you feed the poor and you take care of people. And, and don't hear me wrong. Feed the poor. Take care of people. But don't do that so that God will love you. Do it in response to the fact that he has loved you. And these are image bearers of God created in his image and likeness. And they're there for us to love and to serve. But if it gets lopsided, we forget these other parts that we're talking about. And and what happens is we begin to quote James chapter 1, verse 27. We say, well, true religion, not a pair of jeans, but this other thing, true religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. 
Y'all getting together on Sunday and singing songs to Jesus. That's nice, but I'm doing real religion and you ain't. Now here's the problem with that. The dot, dot, dot after that part of the verse. Because it says true religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to remain unstained from the world. To live a holy life devoted to God in His ways. It's a both and. What does that verse ultimately tell us? That our job is to love God and love people. Just like Jesus. To put God first, others next, and ourselves last. Just like Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Did you hear that? He's saying you knew him. You saw him. You saw him do the works. You heard him preach. He told you the truth. He told you he was the Messiah. He was there for three years. He had a very public ministry. Everybody in Galilee and Judea would have known who he was. And he was sent by God. And this is what we hear in verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up to the, uh, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We'll come back to that phrase, but really what it's saying there is that this thing that is the gospel is not plan B. It's plan A. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he's talking to Judeans specifically. So they can't crucify or execute anybody. So they turn to a Gentile Roman government that has invaded their land and is ruining the stuff of God's people and has made things very hard for them to kill God's Messiah. You, you turn to lawless men. You turn to some foreign power to crucify your king. It, it's powerful. Now, it's by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So, so God sent His Son, Isaiah 53, to come and pay the price for our sins and bear our iniquities and our griefs. But also human beings did it. My son loves to ask this. My four-year-old loves to ask the question about how that all works out. And I tell him the same thing every time. So yeah, they did it. They wanted to do it. But God sent him. He's the Lamb of God. He came to pay the price for our sins. This is what's called atonement. Atonement. Now, I used to hate it when preachers, when I would hear preachers say the phrase, the way you can remember atonement is at one moment until I actually read about it because I thought that was stupid. And then I read, and turns out this guy named John Wycliffe, not to be confused with John Wycliffe, like one guy got that. The Fugees, anyone? Come on. There we go. Two guys got that. Me and two guys. That's good. I'm old. That's what that says. The Fugees. Probably shouldn't listen to their See, I haven't listened to a long time. But Wyclef John stole John Wyclef's name. Anyways, I digress. He comes to this concept. And it's the reality that the God of the universe, through his son, deals with my sin and makes me at one with God, and there was no word in English to describe the phenomenon of the cross, and so he had to create one. This is at the center of the gospel, the atonement that comes through the penal substitution of Jesus Christ, meaning he was punished in my place for my sin. It's what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. Jesus gets what I deserve, and I get what Jesus deserves, and you say, that's not fair. 
you're absolutely right. The gospel isn't fair. You get what you don't deserve and Jesus got what you deserve. He came to save you. It was a rescue mission. You were rescued. Rescue missions aren't fair. They're rescue missions for goodness sakes. He came to deal with our sin. And, and the thing is, sin's not like keg stands and wiling out. Sin is, is this, this whole bigger thing. Yeah, it's, it's my wiling out. It's my rebellion. Absolutely. But in addition to that, it's all the right things I do for all the wrong reasons. It's every time I do something good so that I can feel good about myself or I can think God will love me or, or I'm doing something to earn God's love or so other people see me do it. Yeah, it's a good thing, but you didn't really give that coat to that guy who needed the coat. You gave the coat to yourself. And that's sin. You don't care about that guy in that moment. You care about you. Likewise, there's a plethora of things that are going on in the world that we just kind of turn a blind eye to. There's injustice and pain and suffering and hurt that really, really inconvenience us and so we ignore it. That's also sin. What's amazing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ entered into human history and drinks the cup I deserve for doing those things. I've sinned against God and against man and he has come to save me by taking it upon himself. This Jesus delivered up to the divine, uh, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This cross and this reality is not plan B. God didn't create everything, make Adam and Eve. They rebelled against him. And he said, geez, I didn't see that one coming. What are we going to do about that? I've got it. I've got it. We'll call it the cross. That's it. That's not how God works. What's amazing about history and amazing about your life is that the God of the universe created you knowing all the ways and allowed you to be, allowed you to have life and breath, knowing all the ways that you would sin against him. He knows all the ways you've sinned against him, and yet he still saves. He still saves you. He knows all the way that you've sinned against him, and if you don't know who he is, if you are not a Christian, he's still giving you life and breath and your heart is still pumping, and you still are here. And God's kindness, Romans tells us, is meant to lead to repentance. You still have breath in your lungs so you can confess that Jesus is Lord. Repent and believe and be saved and be loved by Him. Now, if we're not careful, uh, if we get lopsided with this thing that is atonement, or, or, or the cross as we're calling it, what happens is we, we get into this thing where you're just sort of all bad all the time. We move from what Calvin would call total depravity, meaning apart from Christ, we do wrong things. We do the right things for the wrong reasons. We do bad things. All that stuff. We turn that into utter depravity where it's always bad. All that you do all the time is always wrong because here's the reality. As much as we can say, you're a sinner and so am I, we need to have the right understanding of that. You're a sinner and so am I what? Apart from Christ. Because in Christ, if you are a Christian, you are no longer a sinner. You are a saint. You are a son or daughter of God Most High. You are forgiven for your sins. You have been atoned. You've been made right with God. You belong to Jesus. And not height nor depth nor powers nor principalities could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You were a sinner. You are now a saint. 
You were apart from God. Now you are a son or daughter of God. You belong to Him. You are His. So when we say things like that, what, what we, can, we can just miss this reality. that You're more loved and accepted by the God of the universe than you can possibly imagine because Jesus bore the wrath in your place and was more rejected than anyone has ever been rejected in all of time. The crown. We're still in this first movement of the whole Gospel. and We'll put it together here in a second. So, you crucified. Now, can you imagine? You're one of these people and you saw Jesus. You saw Him walking around. Maybe you ate some of that bread. There were 5,000 people there that day. Maybe you ate one of those fish. and Maybe you ate some of that bread. And then you said, yeah, I'm not going to worship Him. I'm going to get on with the rest of my life. But that was the best barley loaf I have ever had. And then you realize he's crucified, he rose. And what Peter's now telling you is that you did that to the Messiah. Right? And what does he say? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised, listen, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus came, he lived. Jesus came, He died. And Jesus came and rose. In rising, this is God's acceptance of His sacrifice in our place. Death couldn't hold Him. He conquers death. Satan couldn't hold Him. He conquers Satan. He's conquered Satan. And He conquers sin because the wages of sin are death. Jesus has defeated Satan, sin, and death. And He has risen. Not only that, He reigns. Jesus is ruling and reigning as we speak. He is in control. He is the king. And you and I live in a broken world where things don't always go the way they ought. Where doctor's appointments end differently than they started. We live in a world with hospitals and doctors and car accidents and darkness. And Jesus, we are told, is putting everything back the way it's supposed to be. Thanks, Aaron. Dandruff. Apparently part of the fall. He rules and He reigns. And, and when we miss this, and I need you to hear this, please. When we miss this reality that we're sons and daughters of God Most High, we sometimes understand the sin that we're saved from, but we don't understand the life we're saved to. And this isn't really good news until you're saved from something and to something. You're saved from Satan and death and sin to freedom and life and joy and the joy of exalting the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. Have you ever heard the phrase, God's not here to make you happy. He's here to make you holy. Heard that one? No? Is that just me? Here's my argument with that phrase. I get the phrase. So if you like it, you can keep using it or whatever. But what I think you're after when we say that is that God's not here to be your cosmic slot machine or ATM and you pray to God and He gives you what you want and Jesus' job in life is to make you as comfortable as possible. That is not the case. If you're here for that, this is the wrong church for you. I have way better news than that. The amazing thing is that Jesus is after your holiness. 
He's after your heart. He's after seeing you live in the freedom. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. That is what he has saved you to. And in life, when we love sin and the things that are against God, we end up chasing all these things that actually enslave us. We actually chase these things that God who made everything and knows how everything works says, that's not how that works. That's not how you live. As a Christian person, we're convicted. We're changed. Our heart is moved. And yes, it makes us holy. And God is after your holiness. But the more holy I become and the more I see Jesus' face, the more I exalt the Lord, the happier and more free I become. The more free from sin and the more I understand who Jesus is and what He's doing in the world, the happier I become. Because my happiness is found in Jesus. So yes, Jesus is not after your worldly happiness. He is after your holiness which leads to eternal happiness, which starts right now. Now, if we, if we get the wrong way with this, if we push this idea too far, we almost end up in a place where we actually just think that nothing bad should ever happen to me. That again, Jesus' job is to make me healthy and wealthy and comfortable. And that if I love Jesus, I don't have to live a life that looks like his in any way, shape, or form. If I have enough faith, I won't get sick. Now, don't hear me wrong. Jesus moves. I've seen him heal people with my own two eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit. So don't hear me say that. Don't don't hear me incorrectly. But the reality is, sometimes there are those who are healed, and sometimes there are those that Jesus is calling home. That's reality. And it's not your faith that keeps you well. It's Jesus' grace and mercy and power. But the wrong message is that if I have enough faith, I won't get sick. And apparently I won't die because everyone dies at some point in time because we live in a fallen, sinful world, right? It gets over-realized that Jesus' whole job in my life is to make me comfortable and make it to where I don't have to live a life anything like his. Friends, that is no comfort to you when the doctor finds something that they weren't supposed to find that day. That's no comfort when your child gets sick or you lose a loved one. The Bible tells us to weep with the weeping and to understand we live in a broken world. A world that Jesus is putting back. And that though there is a, well, there's actually technically two cancer floors at Children's Hospital in Seattle, there is no seventh floor in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you are a doctor, we're so thankful for you, but I hate to break it to you. You, and by the way, I think myself too, if I get this right, the preacher and the doctor, we're both out of business. We get new jobs in the new heavens and the new earth. And I'm ready for that job. Because you won't need me to say, hey, look at Jesus. They'll be like, hey, look, it's Jesus. Let's go hang out with Jesus. Right? I'll be happy to be out of that job. I want to be the tambourine player or something. I don't know. Give me a new job. But that overrealized thing isn't helpful for us in the midst of suffering. We're to weep with the weeping and tell them the truth about who God is. Okay. So second movement. As we move into this second movement, we look at this context of the gospel. Now here is where I think Peter really kind of sticks it to him, and it's wonderful. Verse 25. For David says, now remember, here's our context, right? 
That Jesus is the Messiah who God had promised all the way back in Genesis 3. He's the one who has come. They crucified Him. They didn't accept Him. He's risen from the dead. He sent His Spirit. Now Peter is saying this thing he has to say to these people. And he says, For David says concerning Him, I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. We could say a lot about that little phrase, but the word Hades is a Greek word and it's the word that's put in the Greek translation of the Bible from a couple hundred years before Jesus. For this other word that often is just translated Sheol because it can mean different things. It's all about context. Here the context, if you're in the ESV, it says uh, Hades, I think, if you're in the same ESV I'm in. Uh, but really the better word here is grave. This is what he's after. He's not in the grave. Which, by the way, is quite a feat once you've already died. For you will not abandon my soul to the grave or to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. He rose from the dead. He's in a resurrected body. You have made him known... Uh, you have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness and presence. Brothers, the grave couldn't hold him. David exalts him. It is awesome. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. So why does he call him the patriarch? There's a couple, couple guys who get called patriarch. One's Abraham. He's kind of the first of the Hebrew nation. And here, David, uh, to, the, to, the, to the Hebrew David is the king of kings, the way George Washington is the president of presidents, right? He's on the $1 bill. Or maybe Abraham Lincoln, if you like him better, the president of presidents, right? Now, what he says is this about that guy who they think of as the king of kings, that he both died, so he's dead, and was buried. Oh, pardon me. We missed the best part. Emphasizing the word, with confidence. I will tell you with confidence, David who lived, Almost a thousand years before Christ, he is dead, he is in the grave, and his tomb is with us to this day. I have the address, and we can go see it, people. I honestly don't know if we know where it is now, but Peter seems to think that at least in the first century, he knows how to go to the grave site where David was buried. So what he's saying is he's dead. Okay? He's dead. But listen, this is what the patriarch says. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. You know that thing that's a really boring genealogy in Matthew that you think is so boring? There's a point there. He's trying to show you that Jesus is in the line of David, which we don't care about because we don't read our Old Testament. But if you read your Old Testament war, you'd say, oh, holy smokes, Joseph's the son of David. This is a really big deal for Jesus because Jesus is in the line of the promise that God made to David, the other David, a long time ago that one of his descendants would sit on his throne. Shorthand, please read your Old Testament and read it more. It's really good. And remember, it's always about Jesus. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades or the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. So what he's saying is David gets demoted from king, in a sense, to prophet, because there's a real king of kings. His name is Jesus. And he's not just the king of kings like David was because he's the best king. He's the king of kings because he's the king par excellence. He's the king, 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 the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, not just the ruler of Israel, but the ruler of heavens and earth, the heavens and the earth. Okay? So David, who they thought was awesome, Peter's saying, yeah, he's cool. Jesus. 
King Jesus. So he's putting it in context again. This Jesus raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. I think he's talking about the apostles there. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you remember from last week, if you weren't here, that's fine. Uh, last week we heard about the Holy Spirit descending on the church. And when that happened, uh, people were speaking, uh, they were proclaiming the gospel in all these foreign languages, and people said, oh, those guys must be drunk. And he said, no, they're full of the Spirit. And so he's pointing back to that reality that started the whole sermon, this thing that he can't help but get out. He has poured out this. Now, we missed this, right? So this is one of the promises that the people of God had been waiting for. He read Joel for a reason. It's not that they'd never heard Joel before. They'd actually heard that promise before. And God's people had been sitting around saying, when? 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 At Pentecost, and really through Jesus, the answer is now. 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 Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David, back to David, did not ascend into the heavens. He died. He's in the ground. He's in a tomb. He was just a dude. Jesus was a dude in that he was fully human, but he's also fully God and the Messiah. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, now listen, this is the most quoted Old Testament psalm, pardon me, text at all. This is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the fact that it's the most quoted psalm or, or scripture of any kind in the New Testament tells us that this is cornerstone to the understanding of the early church and to the Bible, which means this should also be cornerstone for you in your understanding of Jesus. Now there's a funny thing here. Did you hear the word Lord twice? The Lord said to my Lord? In Hebrew, you'll see oftentimes L-O-R-D in all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When they're doing that, that is the proper name for God. Yahweh. Okay? That's important. By the time they do that Greek translation, a couple hundred years before Jesus, they were already replacing the word Yahweh. They didn't want to say his name because it's too special. With Lord. So when they're translating this, they come across this thing where the Hebrew Bible says, the, Yahweh says to the Lord. Now, the thing about that Lord, it's a particular way of saying it. It's a way that's pretty much only ever used for God. And so you're the translator, and you get to this thing that David wrote, and it says, the Lord, Yahweh, proper name for God, said to my Lord, a name for God. And you scratch your head and you say, what did David say? The Lord said to my Lord. The God said God. And then you also already have this tradition where you translate that first word. Well, technically it's the word kurios, so it's translated kurios o kurios which you don't need to know Greek to know that's the same word twice. So they punt. And they say, well, we'll just say the Lord said to my Lord. Lord, Lord, sure, let's do it. Let's go with it. Now when Jesus comes, it fills in the blank. Jesus is this Lord. David, the king of kings, is saying, no, that's the king of kings. He is my Lord. He's ruling and reigning. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ Christ means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. He's the one that God promised. This Jesus, now listen. Now imagine you're there. And you are one of those people on Good Friday saying, 
crucify, crucify, crucify. And you hear Jesus whom you crucified. You all did this to the Messiah. You are all responsible for this. If you have sinned against God or against human beings, you are responsible for that apart from Christ. So what do they do? He's now put this good news in context for them. He, they do what I would pray if you're not a Christian and you're here today, you would do. And that if you are a Christian and you're taking this seriously, and this isn't kind of part of the rhythm of your life is thinking about the gospel in this good news, you would realize that this thing should inform every breath that we take, every meal that we eat, every friend that we make, every, every song we listen to on the radio should somehow be informed by this reality. And they can't help but do something. In verse 37, they say this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do now? Listen. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn from your sin. This is repentance. It means to turn. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Baptism is not something that's made up by John the Baptist. He's the first guy we hear about baptizing in the New Testament. Now, he's not called John the Baptist because he was a Southern Baptist. He's called John the Baptist because he was baptizing people. This practice of baptizing people was what the early or the, the Jews around the time of Jesus did, amongst other things, when someone transitioned out of being a Gentile and became Jewish, as we would kind of talk about it. It was this symbol that their life had changed. So what is he calling them to do in response to the gospel? Turn from your sin, turn from your love of self, turn from your love of the world, and turn to Jesus and be baptized as a symbol that your whole life is different now. It's an outward symbol of the reality that we've experienced in Jesus as the Spirit moves in our life and makes us new. The Bible says if you're a Christian, you have a new heart. You might be carrying around a bunch of junk from your life before you knew him. The reality is before you knew him, that was a different person. We're actually new people now. And so because we're new people, we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus and we love Him and we obey Him and we don't obey Him so that He will love us. We obey Him because He has loved us and we trust Him way more than ourselves to tell us how to live. For the promise is for you and for your children. Now again, he's speaking to Judeans here. So people who are part of the, the, the old covenant people of God. So for you and your children, for the, the people. And for you who are far off, this doesn't always hit us the way it should. For you who are far off, he's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about people who are outside the people of God. He's talking about people who Jews in the first century thought didn't belong in part of the people of God. And he's saying this gospel's for you. And so I think by application, if you're here and you're like, yeah, eh, Christians or whatever, I'd have to clean my life up and put on my Sunday best. I'd have to do some external changes and then go follow Jesus. For those of us who are far off, the change is not first and foremost changing what's happening on the outside, but Jesus changing us from the inside by His grace and by His mercy. 
And with many other words, so again, he kept going, which I can't do, but I sometimes want to do. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. There is a lifeboat from your past and your life and your sin. His name is Jesus. Y'all get in it right now. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls on that day. It's a good sermon. Of course, it's the act of God who does it, who, who saves us. So he gives them the, in his third movement the response to the gospel. Repent, be baptized, and live a life empowered by the Spirit by his, and by his word. Right. So coming back to what we started with, well, what do I do? What do I tell my neighbor who wants to hear about Jesus? Or what do I tell about to that poor guy who's stuck on the, on the airplane next to me? Right? He's not, poor, he's not a poor guy. You're sent as an ambassador from the Lord to him. So it's a good day for him. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserved. And he gives us life through his resurrection and by the power of his spirit. And then, of course, our response. Repent and be baptized. Repent and believe. And follow Jesus with your whole life. Be empowered by His Spirit. So if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, I'm calling you to this. This is, this is not a bunch of dusty words. This is the truth of God. The Gospel is different. Every other religion is about how you can get up to God. This is the truth about how God came down to get us and to save us. Today is the day. Repent and believe. Uh, if you are a Christian in, in this reality isn't the thing that, that drives you, this isn't the thing that makes you make decisions about your life or what you do or how you live. Friends, there's nothing more important than seeking the face of the Lord. You might have a potluck or something to do this afternoon, but I tell you what, that potluck's not that important compared to making sure you're right with Jesus. Don't do anything else. If you've got someone you've got to talk to, talk to them. If you've got someone you apologize, apologize to them. Uh, you've got some, some junk to cough up, cough it up to somebody. But don't do anything else until this gospel message is the thing driving your life. And if you are here, and I never mean this perfectly when I say this, but, but if this is the thing that, that is informing your life, it is the window by which you're seeing the world and how you roll, I would just ask you, how are you giving of yourself to help other people follow Jesus and to live in the context of the gospel and to live with this thing driving their hearts? That when you feel alone or abandoned or messed up, you know Jesus is there. And Jesus actually knows what it's like to be you. When you feel rejected, you, you come back to the truth that Jesus has been more rejected than you will ever be. And despite the fact that human beings have rejected, you are more accepted and loved by God than you can possibly imagine. That the thing that empowers you to fight temptation and war against sin is the Spirit dwelling inside you. And that you have a place with God in His kingdom Forever and ever. If that's driving you, how, how are you going to give of yourself to have that drive other people to? Let's pray.